want the Republicans to wake up is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Just a guy burdened with too many opinions. And I'm grateful to the people who support this podcast via voluntary subscriptions like Keita Tom of Corvallis, Oregon, Susan Hubbard of Salinas, California, and Susan Graham, a brand new subscriber, address unknown. If you'd like to help, go to my website at peterbcollins.com and just click on the tab that says you can help. Later in this podcast, we're going to talk with Frankie LePay, more properly known as Frances Moore LePay. And you may recall her original book, a bestseller called Diet for a Small Planet. She's got a new book out called Getting a Grip Squared. Yeah, that's getting a grip to the second power. And it's kind of a, a little balm for people who bought into change we can believe in and don't believe that the change has been delivered. And she's got some practical ideas about how you can get active and bring on a little change of your own. But first, we're going to take a look at a corporate-driven ballot measure that appears here in California in the June primary as Proposition 16. Brought to you, paid for with many commercial interruptions to come, by the massive utility Pacific Gas and Electric Company. And joining us is an independent analyst and uh, a guy who studies these issues in detail, David Kirsten. He's from Kirsten Communications, and if you'd like to visit the website and read the report or others, the report we're about to discuss, you can go to Kirsten, K-E-R-S-T-E-N, KirstenCommunications.com. Welcome to our program, David. Thanks, Peter. Glad to be here. And give our listeners a little background about your work in the past uh, as a legislative aide and a sometime lobbyist. Yeah, you know, I got my start in politics really as a lobbyist for the California Tax Reform Association in 2003, um, you know, looking at behind corporate-backed tax bills and, you know, just giveaways to special interests. And then I went on to work in the Capitol, you know, sponsoring some of those bills um, for first for Senator Martha Scudia from Los Angeles and then in the Assembly for Assemblyman Jose Solorio. And I've been on my own for a couple years now, you know, really digging down on some of these um, you know, corporate ballot measures and other, you know, tax loopholes and the like. And are you the kind of guy who just thrives on the Friday afternoon document dump? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I now that I'm on my own, it, it is just around the clock, and whenever you can get the research, I, you know, try to put it together and, you know, a piece that, you know, is is easy to read and pulls from various sources. So. Uh-huh. Well, give our listeners an you know kind of unbiased thumbnail of Proposition 16 before we go into detail about it. It's a bill that was placed on the ballot solely by Pacific Gas and Electric to make it more difficult, if not impossible, for local municipalities to move to um, public-owned utilities, which are which have lower rates than. Um, you know, than PG&E. It's called the, officially it's called the taxpayer's right to vote. Right. And it, it requires local governments to obtain the approval of two-thirds of voters before providing electricity to new customers or expanding service into new territories if any public funds or bonds are involved. Um, okay. Right now that's a majority vote required. So it would essentially just make it a lot easier for them to defeat these efforts to switch to, you know, more clean power 
like in Marin County, there was an effort to, you know, switch to public utility. And same here out in Yolo County, mm-hmm. um, the local SMUD, which is well known for, you know, using vast use of renewable resources and having much lower rates than PG&E, but PG&E was successfully able to defeat that measure by with a bunch of corporate propaganda. And Dave, I'll, I'll tell you a little more, because I'm based in Marin County, and I'm uh, pretty well versed on the, the battle that's underway here. Uh, but first, just again to give our listeners a sketch, and many don't live in California, what is the consumer footprint of PG&E? Because this is a ballot measure that would impose the, these, this constitutional amendment of a two-thirds requirement uh, statewide, but PG&E only services, what, 40 or 45 percent of the utility users in the state? Yes, they are the biggest privately owned utility in the state and, you know, out of the munis as far as total size. But, you know, you're right, they're only a, a portion of the overall statewide market. You know, you have Southern California Edison down south and San Diego Gas and Electric are the two other big um, privately owned utilities. And about 24% of consumers in California get their power from a municipal utility as as it stands presently. Yeah, that's right. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So that's a quick sketch. Uh, PG&E has also notified its shareholders that it expects to spend as much as $35 million in pursuit of passage of Proposition 16, and that uh, shareholders should expect their dividends to be reduced in the coming year as a result. Yep. It's essentially paid for by the higher rates that PG&E charges their California consumers, but also the rate payers. I mean, it comes from the rate payers, or pardon me, from PG&E's investors, but all of PG&E's income comes from California rate payers. Right. And to just help people out a little bit, there is actually a holding company, of Pacific Gas and Electric, and then there's the operating company, which is who I pay my utility bill to. And it's the holding company that is providing the funding for the ballot measure, at least if they're following the law, right? It's listed in the the filing as PG&E. I'm not sure which entity they're using. I haven't I haven't looked at that more closely. I'm looking it up right now. Okay. But if if they take it out of the operating company, then they really are charging ratepayers for it, or the the profit they make from ratepayers is directly being used to subsidize the ballot measure. But if it's coming from the uh, parent company, the holding company, then it is the shareholders who are bearing the burden. Yeah, I mean that would. I mean, the holding company gets draws on money from its, you know, California subsidiaries. So, you know, ultimately, Cal- California ratepayers are paying at least a portion of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, one of the issues here that I think is fundamental is that, in my opinion, Proposition 16 is anti-democratic because it requires only a bare majority to place into the Constitution the requirement for a supermajority for communities to choose a a local utility. And this has an arcane name, CCA, which stands for Community Choice Aggregation. Uh, And it's the product of a law that was passed, uh, AB 117, in 2002. Yeah, as a way to make it, you know, to... PG was in in support of that effort at the time, and that's uh, caused a big row with the legislature, and that that was something that was set up to you know, make it easier to use green power and set up a, a process that makes sense for mu- moving to municipal utilities, uh, pardon me, municipal utilities. Right. But, you know, PG&E has reneged on that and really just went it alone and put up all this money to do what they want as opposed to what was agreed to at that time. And, and what is your sense of the reason for that change? Because PG&E touts itself as a green utility, uh, they have agreed with the goals of AB 32, which is Arnold Schwarzenegger's response to climate change. And to me, uh, one of the best uh, things that he could claim as part of his legacy as governor of California. Um, and they actually need uh, renewable energy from a variety of sources to meet the target of, I believe, 20 percent renewables by 2018. Yeah, that's right. The- there's no way around, you know, the fact that they're going to have to at least make a 
reasonable effort to meet those targets, but out of all the utilities in California, they have the lowest um, percentage that comes from renewable resources at this time. Mm-hmm. And this measure just would kind of would reward, essentially make it easier for them to make it harder for these communities to move to munis that are taking advantage or that are being more aggressive in moving to renewable power. Now, if we look at the longer term, back in the late 90s, PG&E and other utilities uh, cobbled together the deregulation scheme that sailed through the legislature, was signed by Governor Wilson, and led to the debacle that almost turned the lights out uh, in 2001-2002. Now, there were uh, unexpected external forces there, uh, like Enron, like uh, Enron and El Paso Gas, uh, they were gaming the system to gouge Californians. But it was the deregulation framework that permitted that. And so, in, in my view, PG&E has a kind of checkered history with the legislation that it has sought. And at the time, it appeared to be trying to get out of the generation business. They just wanted to market and distribute power. And if you remember, uh, Kenny Loggins was on television uh, telling us that we could buy electricity made in Vermont uh, from Green Mountain Power. And there were others who were uh, competing for uh, generation business among California consumers. And after the, uh, the, the blunders that uh, you know, took our grid uh, to the limit, uh, that uh, cost California somewhere between 8 and $11 billion dollars, Uh, as we subsidize the utilities to buy power on the spot market. After that, PG&E went into bankruptcy, in which they were able to offload to the ratepayers the uh, so-called stranded costs, the overruns that date back to the construction of the twin uh, nuclear reactors at Diablo Canyon in the 1980s. Would you agree with that uh, historical summary? Yeah. And so... In the bankruptcy, they were able to soak us, and we pay some of the highest electricity rates in the country. And uh, then after that, we were only able to buy power that was purchased or generated by PG&E. So along comes this uh, community choice aggregation, and it at least presents the framework for alternative energy sources, renewable sources, such as somebody who's got a solar array uh, on their property, on the roof or in the backyard, and they're able to generate more power than they can use. And so theoretically, they could put that onto the grid and assist PG&E in its goal of achieving the renewables target. So why would, at this point, PG&E turn around and uh, try to squash the Marin Energy Authority, which we'll talk about in a minute, and then go for this uh, audacious ballot measure that would essentially lock in their monopoly at all stages of production and distribution. They see this as a way of preempting these, you know, future efforts. They had a, it, you know, Marin and Yolo County has been a big thorn in their side for the past, you know, few years. They've had to spend a lot of money, you know, in campaign consulting and mail and, um, you know, money on the ground to try to defeat these efforts. So they figure rather than they see where this is going, that this could be happening down in the valley or down south, you know, sooner or later. So they figure we better get on this now and preempt these efforts, these future efforts, before they even get going. Because if you put this two-thirds vote requirement in there, a lot of these, before they even get started, before you even move, you require a two-thirds vote when you're even looking at doing this. Um, It's going to really make it very difficult for any of these munis to try to get that effort underway. Understood. And so what I'm trying to understand is the thinking in the boardroom and the corporate suites at PG&E, because they were uh, anxious to get out of the generation part and just make their money on, uh, you know, running the power on the wires and collecting for distributing it to my home. And the CCA structure uh, really only affects the source of the power Uh, and the generation process, because PG&E retains jurisdiction over the delivery, the billing, and, uh, you know, servicing it when a storm takes your your power line down. You know, from what I understand, they they would actually lose customers if you do switch to a muni. They're, you know, you would, 
those those customers could be served by you know the public utility of you know the choice of the locals. Now maybe that maybe that's an option under the law. I have not read it in its entirety, but the way the Marin Energy Authority is structured, they are simply uh, an aggregator for consumers who will buy power that is more uh, is greener or more based on renewables. And it still will be up to PG&E to deliver that energy to my home. And clearly, you know, they can't control which electrons go to which household. So even if I buy the so-called deep green uh, product, I essentially am just directing my dollars to put more renewable-based energy on the PG&E grid. And they will still retain the, the distribution and the collection functions. So it seems to me to be fulfillment of their original intent under deregulation. You know, that very w- well may be. I, in the public hearings that I've seen on this issue, you know, in the legislative hearing that they held a few weeks ago, they didn't mention anything about that. They primarily pitched it as a way to protect taxpayers from having to purchase the infrastructure of, you know, if you, have, if you switch to a muni and it requires that that muni buy you know, PG&E's infrastructure, which would, you know, presumably mean that they wouldn't deliver it in those communities, that that requires a two-thirds vote. So, you know, to me that indicates that, you know, their primary motivation is to, you know, prevent the kind of takeover of their their infrastructure and service territory. Okay. And uh, what about rates? Is this a way for PG&E to maintain uh, a very strong grip on the rates that we pay for electricity. Yeah, well, right now, just based on, you know, as regulated utilities, each, um, most customers just have one um, utility provider for who, based on where they live. I live in downtown Sacramento. We have the SMUD, which is the local muni. Um, If you know, if you live down in San Diego, you have San Diego Gas and Electric. And um, there's been some rate comparisons done um, by the California Energy Commission, which shows that, um, you know, PG&E is about $0.13 cents, uh, per kilo, kilowatt hour, whereas SMUD is $0.10. Cents. So that's, you know, $0.03 cents savings under Muni, LADWP is um, 11 cents, so that's still mm-hmm. cheaper um, under the Muni. Um, so essentially, by require, by making it harder for folks to switch to these other Munis, PG&E is forcing customers to stick with PG&E, which means sticking with their higher rates. And do you know if the other um, uh, investor-owned utilities, San Diego Gas and Electric and Southern California Edison, are joining forces with PG&E, or are they fighting this uh, uh, ballot measure campaign on their own? You know, so far they're fighting it all on their own. At last I looked a few days ago, they had raised $19 million for this measure, and all of it came from PG&E. And that was something that was very curious that was brought up at the legislative hearing about, you know, legislators wanted to know, well, why, you know, why isn't SoCal Edison, why isn't SDG&E supporting this? And they said, PG&E said, well, well, I don't know that we're all alone on this, but thus far they have not came out in support. I haven't seen any statements from them they appear to be, you know, keeping a safe distance from this measure. I don't know if that's for a, you know, from a PR standpoint or if they don't they don't foresee, you know, this is a good measure for policy reasons. But, you know, it's very interesting because you would think if it benefits PG&E, it could also benefit them. But apparently it, you know, doesn't provide enough benefits for them to make that it makes sense to get on board. And based on the chart that you published here, uh, PG&E actually is the lowest price of the three investor-owned utilities at $0.13 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, Southern California Edison is at 14 and San Diego Gas and Electric at $0.16 cents per kilowatt hour. So you'd think that they would be eager to lock in uh, in the same way that PG&E seems to want to do. Yeah. 
and I, I think that will come out at some point. I'd, you know, I'd like to look at that more closely about, you know, maybe doing some interviews with those folks, um, their lobbyists or government affairs, um, to see what they think about this measure and, you know, what actually went down in their boardrooms as to why they didn't take a position on this. Yeah. So you reference Marin County, which is where I live and work, and uh, the county put up about half a million dollars uh, to explore the possibility, and ultimately uh, seven communities and the county have agreed to form the Marin Energy Authority. This went through uh, about a three-year process of public comment, public meetings, and the various votes at town councils and the county board of supervisors. And it wasn't until after... That process was concluded that PG&E formed a, a nonprofit front group, what we call AstroTurf, called uh, Citizens for Common Sense or something like that. And the Common Sense Coalition, which is a coalition they say that includes PG&E, but we can't find anybody else who's involved with it, has spent about $300,000 so far sending a series of mailers that are very aggressive and largely misleading, urging people to opt out, which is their right, to opt out of service from the Marin Energy Authority before that service has even been offered to them. Because the way the plan is rolling out, only 1,200 customers, mostly commercial users, are included in the first phase. And the average homeowner in the communities that voted for the Marin Energy Authority won't even have a choice for about a year to 18 months. Yet, in advance of this ballot measure, it seems that PG&E has picked uh, Marin County for an initial battle. And they're really just trying to crush this uh, using uh, means that are a little bit shady. For example, as their spokesman, they hired former Assemblyman Joe Nation, whose title is he's a climate change professor at Stanford. And despite that credential, he is very actively uh, working with the company. And when he attends public meetings or interviews, he interchanges I and we, we meaning PG&E, quite often. And he is using some misleading statistics uh, to talk about carbon emissions from power generation and distribution instead of talking about the uh, degree to which renewable resources are used to generate power. And he tries to create the argument of a parity, that there isn't really any difference uh, between the energy that uh, the Energy Authority would purchase and that that is currently produced by PG&E. But to get to those numbers, they use nuclear power as a so-called green energy source. And I, for one, take exception to that because it's only green in the extent that uh, it's the kind of green that glows in the dark for half a million years. (laughs) Yep. And so this relentless assault of mailers also attacks the risk, the alleged risk to the county, which at the most, if if you add it all up, is about $2 million. Um, And they try to scare people into opting out again of service that they haven't been offered yet. And I find it very rich because this is a company that went into bankruptcy just a few years ago because of the risky legislative maneuvers that uh, they sponsored for the deregulation measure in the late 1990s. Yep. Well, I think what we have to remember here is that, and that was the goal of the o, the legislation in O2, is that more choice is better. Let's provide customers with a choice if they want to go with renew uh, power company that has you know lower rates and has, uses more renewable power, they can do that. If they want to go with PG&E, they can do that. I think PG&E is getting out there early because they're worried um, that folks are going to want to switch to the a utility which is you know very likely to have much lower rates. We know that you know they don't have yet a track record on. The, where they're getting all their resources, but um, when when their marketing rolls out, I just think that PG&E is, you know, fighting a losing battle for customers there. And, you know, it reminds me of the tobacco industry in the 80s and 90s where they formed all these front groups of folks who were supposedly against, you know, stricter 
laws, you know, to protect public health. But in reality, it was just the tobacco industry funding, you know, spokespeople and, you know, a, a kind of an astroturf lobbying campaign, grassroots lobbying campaign. Yeah. Well, David, I want to direct you and our listeners to uh, uh, the website of a show. It's a local cable show, an interview program that I uh, started with a friend a couple of months ago. And uh, we interviewed Joe Nation, the uh, spokesman I referred to for PG&E and also Charles McClashen, who is the chair of this Emerging Marin Energy Authority. Yeah, that, that, And the, yeah. Website, the website for that is uh, marinvoicesandviews.com. So take a look and see if that adds to your uh, uh, database and your information. I-, I wanted to ask you to comment on the conclusion in your report. You write, sure. California's initiative process was designed to serve as an added check to corporate greed and corruption by giving California voters a direct way to participate in the democratic process. On its face, Prop 16 may appear to some voters to benefit them by setting a higher bar, namely requiring a two-third vote requirement for the use of taxpayer funds. However, a closer examination of the measure reveals that Prop 16 is not really about protecting taxpayers at all. PG&E, through Prop 16, is trying to use the California initiative process to further solidify their monopoly of regional electricity markets and advance their own narrow corporate interests at the expense of all Californians. Hopefully, voters will see through this veiled attempt to use the initiative process against the public interest. And so we might ask ourselves, uh, WWHJD, what would Hiram Johnson do? (laughs) He, of course, is the the corporate breakup guy who... uh, helped uh, rewrite the California Constitution to insert the initiative process uh, back after, uh, oh, the turn of uh, the 19th to 20th century. Yep. And that's, you know, when I saw this measure and heard about this measure, I it just, you know, recalled some history. I was talking with an associate of mine who, um, you know, wrote a paper on this issue and you know, looked at some of this history about the progressive era when that dawned in 1911. The whole purpose of the initiative process was to break up the monopoly control over politics and shipping that the Southern Pacific Railroad had in in the late the second half of the 19th century and the early 1900s um, by going directly to the voters and you know giving them giving them a say and, you know, ending this corruption. So they, the legislature you know, um, almost unanimously passed this package of reforms. And, you know, 100 years later, you have PG&E coming along um, you, and trying to use the process essentially against um, voters and the public interest by placing Prop 16 on the ballot, which would, appears to benefit nobody except for PG&E, um, not even the other investor-owned utilities, as far as um, we can tell, all with the end of you know further locking in their monopoly of uh, regional electricity markets. And David Kirsten, I would argue, and maybe this is just a moral argument, not something that's grounded in the law, but a, an investor-owned utility has the uh, uh, is granted a monopoly over a service area. And it is guaranteed a fixed rate of return. And so that even as other companies in the state have struggled through this current recession, PG&E has enjoyed a very predictable flow of revenues and profits. And virtually every time they go before the Public Utilities Commission, their requests for rate increases are granted. And I would argue that they have a higher obligation to honor the public interest and not to use the power that they derive from the regulated monopoly to uh, really fight against the interests of their customers. I agree, and that's why many people are are really shocked by this measure, both um, legislators and other interest groups up in Sacramento and beyond, and that, you know, at the same time they're asking for, you know, another $5 billion increase in rates, you know, in in the coming years. It, it is baffling to some, and, uh, you know, folks say, you know, it's just a 
brazen attempt by a corporation to, you know, essentially hijack the initiative process for their own ends. And Dave, what can you tell us about organized opposition? Uh, does it exist, and do they have the funds to take on this $35 million budget that PG&E has revealed? Under current law, the municipal utilities are prohibited from giving um, funds to camp- for campaign purposes. So they have had some difficulty um, raising funds. There is um, a campaign organized against the measure. It's being run by um, Gail Kaufman with Kaufman Campaigns out here in Sacramento and um, Turn the Utility Reform Network in San Francisco is also a um, big opponent of the measure. They you know, have $15,000 in their campaign account, but you know, it looks like it's going to be really a David against Goliath here. I don't see the opponents, you know, raising more than, you know, potentially, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. I mean, that's um, not enough to pay Gail Kaufman. Well, we'll see. She's she's agreed to take the campaign on. Um, I don't know exactly where the money's going to come from, but mm-hmm. we know there is going to be a cam- some campaign against this measure. Yeah. Anything else that you can tell us from your uh, research and your monitoring of the uh, comments coming from legislators about Proposition 16, David? You know, I think it's it has really strained relations um, between, you know, the Senate leadership, Senate pro tem Daryl Steinberg and a number of other key legislators in PG&E um, for even introducing this measure and not even consulting them first um, before you know, just essentially going alone and unilaterally, you know, putting this on the ballot, um, you know, how that could play out on other issues and other, you know, major um, legislation that, you know, affects PG&E will yet, be, yet to be seen this session. You know, really we're just looking forward to June to, you know, seeing how this campaign plays out. Um, I haven't seen any recent polling lately, but you know, I expect the field poll to be releasing some numbers sometime soon, and we'll really know where we're at yeah. as far as the public either seeing through this measure or, you know, still needing more information. All right, David Kirsten from Kirsten Communications, thank you very much for joining us and putting up with my cough here today. And uh, is there any other recent report that you'd like people to know about that they can find on your website? I did do a recent report on the spending of the federal stimulus in California. You know, there's a list of projects of, you know, a year into it, you know, where the money's been spent, how much has been spent, as well as a, a citizen guide for folks to find out, you know, how the money has been spent in their community. There's also a summary of all the ballot measures on the, on the June and what's qualified for November that citizens could go on there and see. Um, who's giving to those who supports it and the arguments for and against. All right. Nice to talk with you, David. Thanks for your work. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate you having me. David Kirsten, kirstencommunications.com. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues. Sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Just click on the link on my homepage for a very special offer. In this proud land, we grew up strong. Regular listeners to this podcast series may find it a little depressing. As your humble host has criticized the Obama administration, and on my little hope sticker on my sliding glass door here, I changed the H to an N in protest over the continuing wiretapping of domestic communications in clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. I've criticized Obama for bungling the health care reform efforts and marginalizing single-payer advocates from the start for pursuing a hopeless effort at bipartisanship with obstructionist Republicans. And you know there are other issues that I've dinged him on as well. And every now and then I like to plug into the spark plug named Francis Moore LePay for a little dose of optimism, activism, and this is not blue sky bullshit. Frances Moore LePay is very well grounded. And you know her from her original bestseller, Diet for a Small Planet. 
Her newest book is called Getting a Grip, and then there's a superscript, too. And, Frankie, is that Getting a Grip squared, or is just just the second installment? The second installment. This is the kind of soundtrack of my life, this book. And I'm going to keep, you know, I'll do many other books, I hope, but I'm going to keep this one. There's going to be number two, which is out now, and then maybe a few years from now it'll be number three. So it's a two. You start off in your introduction at Thanksgiving last year, and uh, you were having a kind of depressive moment. I was on a very, one of my favorite holidays, but sitting there thinking, oh my God, I mean, I just, you know, was listening to what you were saying about your perceptions of our reality a year after or more um, of, of this new president who is so different from George Bush in so many ways, and yet here we are, and it just feels like we've gone backward, backward, backward. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of hitting me, wait a minute, there millions of more people going hungry than when I wrote Diet for a Small Planet. And uh, here in America, we produce almost a quarter of the world's economic output, and yet half of our children will be on food stamps at some point in their lives. And we have have unlimited funds for illegal wars in Afghanistan that uh, Obama is actually expanding. Yes. Uh, But, uh, you know, the obstructionist uh, won't give us a dime to... Uh, save lives, the the 40,000-plus Americans who die every year simply because they don't have health insurance, and the bankruptcies that are attributed to uh, health problems that arise and uh, turn a family's finances upside down. And that that's even before we hit the Wall Street-induced recession. Yeah. And, and so things really, you know, we, we came off a high, and, and I remember vividly and, and almost tearfully uh, watching uh, Obama's uh, election night speech in Grant Park in Chicago, where I went to school. My brother was there with his family. We talked uh, on his cell phone. And the the electricity uh, was was very palpable. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, I am a, a you know guy with a, a strong cynicism gland and with uh, realism software that, that I thought was uh, preventing me from having uh, expectations that were unrealistic or out of line. But e- even my minimalist hopes have been uh, unrealized, and that's a polite way to put it. Mm-hmm. And and so you really are saying that uh, in, in this new book that uh, you're not giving up and that you are turning to the resources, both human and other, that are in your existing network and you're trying to revitalize those so that we can bring about the change that we personally believe in, not to overwork that cliche. But uh, the responsibility is on us. We can't just project it on Obama or on the political leadership or even the political apparatus at all. Exactly. And I so identify with what you're saying about that moment where, you know, I thought I had my, my I thought I had a grip, right? Uh, and yet I, I was betraying myself by believing that things could change in a significant way with a new leader. And when I say betraying myself, I was really betraying the message of my book, Getting a Grip, because the core idea of this book is that human beings, and now confirmed by very interesting new science, including anthropology and neuroscience, but human beings are hardwired to be very, very cooperative, empathetic, need fairness and need a voice and power on the one hand, and we also, uh, just as much evidence that we can be incredibly insensitive down to downright cruelty and brutality toward one another as we see all around us today and certainly in the Holocaust and and the massacres that we see. Uh, so my evidence-based view says, wait a minute, if we're both good and bad, if we're this incredibly interesting mix then what matters most of all is what is the context, what is the rules that we as citizens create that bring out the best or the worst. So describe your term, thin democracy. Well, that's what brings out the worst, and that's what we have now, and I think it's a too charitable term for it. I've tended to call it more and more frequently privately held government. (laughs) And uh, I think uh, that rings true for a lot of people. Thin democracy is the idea that democracy amounts to simply a political system, elected government, you know, uh, different uh, centers of power supposedly counterbalancing each other in Washington. Very little expected of citizens except maybe to vote, but that's not even required. And 
about all that's required of us is to work and shop. So thin democracy is the minimalist idea that all you need is a market economy and plus uh, certain institutions, elected government, and that's it. Um, and it's it's destined to fail because it assumes that human beings are are basically don't need to have voice and power and to participate, and it assumes that we can allow power to concentrate through our economy, and it won't infect and distort and ruin our political system. So this idea of uh, thin democracy is this simple duo that that kind of work on their own. You know, the economy just kind of automatically <laughs> works. Um, Self-regulation is, for Wall Street. Right, and it means that wealth accrues to wealth to accrues to wealth until we get to the point we do today that was named so beautifully, speaking of labels, that is so appropriate by Citigroup in the year 2005 in their memo. They called what we have a plutonomy. One mm. percent, the top one percent of households controlling as much as the bottom ninety percent. So they say, look, folks, there is no you know average American consumer. There's just the rich and the non-rich, and the non-rich. Hey, we make up a pretty small slice of the pie. Now that that plutonomy is a term that uh, you introduced to me in the in the book, and it, it struck me. I, I don't know if you've ever picked up the Rob Report. Uh, no. I've seen it at airports and read it on airplanes. It's a, it, I, I don't know how thick it is now, but a few years back, it was a, a very hefty, glossy, full-color magazine, all aimed at people with huge disposable incomes. Mm. And so there'd be multiple double-truck uh, ads for uh, timeshare jets. Um <laughs> Yeah, you know, you, you, you don't wanna you don't wanna tie up your capital on your own Learjet, but you know, you can get a fractional ownership uh for just a couple of hundred grand. And uh all kinds of baubles and uh you know, uh they'd showcase these uh palatial homes and McMansions uh, all over the world. And it, it really to me was kind of a barometer mm-hmm. of of the madness of consumption and the worship of of, of the rich not for who they are or how they achieved wealth, but just because they have all these toys. Right. And so, Peter, let me just make really clear that one of my one of my gripes, I can't say one of my beasts, of course, being the author of <laughs> Planet, but one of my gripes about the progressive movement, which I feel very much part of, is that over my lifetime, so much of our energy has gone into naming uh, the bad guys who are creating the problem uh, and wanting to get rid of them and, and, and really almost demonizing the very, very wealthy. And my thesis in, has increasingly become that that is an absolute distraction and that we have to step up and say, okay, we, all of us, you know, we've gone along or we haven't stood firm enough against changes of rules, which has allowed the market to speed even faster into the hands of the top 1%, so that now half of our children live at some point on food stamps. So it's not about bad people or good people. It's Mm -hmm. about whether we're smart enough and we get wake up enough to understand that 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 insensitivity to the point of absolute cruelty and death, as you were saying in in your introductory remarks, is... Forty more thousand people dying because of lack of health insurance, and yet we you know, we still don't have it. Um, so the point is that we all have to step up and say, how do we create the rules to keep wealth circulating? You know, and I go back in the book to the monopoly game mm-hmm. because we should have learned that even with you know getting two hundred dollars when you pass go, even with that minimal you know redistribution, it still led to one. At the end of the night, had the money, yeah. had the, had the property, mm-hmm. and in my case, it was my brother, and I couldn't afford Baltic Avenue. <laughs> so maybe that's the story of my life. Baltic but was only sixty bucks. It was, but I couldn't <laughs> even get that, Peter. That's where the public housing is. Right. <laughs> well, but, but, I, I share but, your but, point, and I, I don't <laughs> demonize uh, individuals, uh, you know, whether they're wealthy or not. To me, there's a culture, and I believe that the cycle of market research and uh, massive consumption of television and movies has led people, and, and Tom Frank uh, captured this in What's the Matter with Kansas, mm-hmm. but, but we have people who are uh, decidedly middle class who oppose increasing taxes on the wealthy. 
And I believe it comes from a kind of brainwashing mm-hmm. where many people think that, well, that could be me. I, I'm on the verge of, of becoming the next Steve Jobs or, you know, whoever your uh, uh, rich idol might be. And American Idol is, is the way that I'm going to break out of uh, my dreary existence and everybody's going to know me and I'm going to make millions of dollars. And, and so I, I feel that we, you know, the thin democracy is based on uh, couch potatoes with their remotes who take all that in and their imaginations run wild and it affects their thinking in the political realm. I agree with you. I agree with you. And, of course, I think you'd agree with me that that, that the dominance of a, you know, a handful of six or so media uh, operations in this country that then reduce most of what's put out there to the lowest common denominator, to the most, the people who consume the, the media the most, means that those messages get more and more dominant, more virulent in the case of hate radio. Yeah. And so then it, it, it becomes a self-reinforcing. Once we, once we buy the initial, once we drink the initial Kool-Aid, right, saying that somehow a middle-class society just creates itself automatically through what Reagan called the magical market, right? Mm-hmm. Then once we buy that, then all of these other things flow, which include the concentration of the media to this low, low denominator, that then we, we see these images which tell us that the only chance is chance itself. The only chance we have is luck. Like you're saying, you know, maybe I'll make it. Maybe I'll have a kid with a voice that could get a win on American Idol or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is the exact opposite of a democratic ethic, democratic ethos that tells us that, yeah, you know, with our neighbors and with um, working together, we can create the kind of educational system and the kind of economic system in which we can all participate and have good lives. People give up on that and think that luck is the only thing left. And my book is about saying, no, we can't give up on that because these are all products of human choices. And the world that I grew up in in the U.S., the world from the, you know, from the 40s to the 70s, and as I was writing Diet for Small Planets then, that that world was one in which actually the lowest 20% of us, the bottom fifth, were advancing faster than any other group in the country. We were all advancing, but that group saw a doubling in real income, doubling of their incomes on one household, you know, one earner per household pretty much. There weren't as many two earners. And then that began to reverse itself. And in the 1960s, for example, we cut the poverty rate in half. And yet by the time we got to, you know, the year 2000, we were adding a million new poor people every year. Mm-hmm. So the theme of my book, Getting a Grip, is that we can get a grip. This is not, there's no reason why it has to be this way. But we have bought into ideas that violate everything we know about human nature. We've allowed the concentration of power and two other conditions that I identify in the book that are proven to bring out the worst. And we can therefore address them. And then I tell stories of actually where people are reversing, you know, flipping those causes mm-hmm. of the worst in us. And, and your counter to thin democracy is not fat democracy, but you call it living democracy. And three key points that you uh, bullet in the book... In place of centralized power, living democracy works for continuous dispersion of power. In place of anonymity, living democracy builds communities of transparency and trust. And in place of scapegoating, the blame game, living democracy promotes a mutuality in which we hold ourselves accountable, not just the other guy. And I'd like to, uh, to turn, uh, nobody else has the book, but I'm looking at a chart called Idea 2. Mm-hmm. We all have public lives. And mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. this is important because uh, my public life is this expression uh, mm-hmm. through radio and podcasts. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, I, I don't pay attention to this stuff because I can't really do anything about it. And, uh, you know, I'd rather just uh, watch sports on my flat screen TV. But you make the point that everybody has the opportunity for a public life that doesn't involve running for office or, uh, you know, being in the media. There are just many ways that we can use our own skills and resources uh, to affect change. Right. And I also say that, that the only choice we don't have is whether to change the world. 
that whether we think we are changing the world or not, we are. Every choice, even if it's sitting and watching our, our favorite show, that is reinforcing that particular show's existence and something else not happening because that's what we're doing. I mean, not to say that I'm against all, watching all television, of course, but the point is that everything, every choice we're making, like I, I often say to people, when you buy food that is chemically treated, you're saying, yes, I want more people to be poisoned in the field and die early. It already, uh, farm workers in this country have a life expectancy of less than 50 years. Yes, I want more of that. You know, we don't really think that we have the power, but we, in that sense, every choice we make is sending ripples throughout the community. So we either change the world consciously according to what we know, or we do it unconsciously and think backward. And, uh, Frankie, just the other day, I had lunch with a young man. He's 25, and I've known, I've known him as a family friend since he was five years old. And we had a very lively discussion about the role of religion. He is a uh, devout Christian. He has volunteered for the Campus Crusade. And uh, he and I were batting around ideas because for Christmas I gave him a, a book by the progressive uh, 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 bishop, uh, John Shelby Spong. And he was a little uncomfortable with some of these progressive ideas. Mm. And he, he sketched a, a view of life that is not fully literal to the Bible, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a much more literal interpretation than I'm comfortable with. And in particular, uh, he was arguing, and I don't think it, he was conscious of it, because I, I made the case to him that uh, my big problem with organized religion is that so much of it is focused on trying to control private and personal behavior, whether it's gay marriage or, uh, uh, you know, uh, the right to uh, choose an abortion or things like that. And I said, you know, you, plural, you religionists, uh, are not taking on the most critical moral issues of our time. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, we've got these wars going on, and we've got um, Israel using the tools that were used against it in the Holocaust against the Palestinian people. And it's unconscionable, it's immoral, and I don't hear uh, Christian American voices speaking out against that. They're too busy trying to stop two guys from getting married. And, and he, he took a position that really surprised me. He said, well, you know, the Bible says that there will always be war and pestilence. And I stopped him and I said, wait a minute. The, the, the message of Jesus was not <laughs> to accept right. uh, the, the weakness of man and the, the failings of our civilizations. It was to make your best effort to change what you can. And uh, he really didn't pick up on that. And I don't want to pick on Dan. Uh, he's, he's a good guy, and, and I think he you know, has the right attitude in trying it, to spread his faith. But uh, I, I just feel that that, that whole sense of just passivity uh, about the big moral questions is something we need to take head on. Mm -hmm. I, I agree, and my, my angle I come in at it <laughs> is a bit different in the sense that I, what I'm focusing on here, I mean, I really... I'm with you. But what my particular passion is, is to focus on really what is in our nature. What is that anthropology is telling us, hard, you know, neuroscience is telling us about our, what it means to be a human being and that we are naturally not, we couldn't have made it to almost 7 billion if we were fundamentally just passive. That we learn that through our culture just to accept, to say there's nothing we can do. And that actually human beings are we're distinctive. We are, we are creators together. This is one of the distinct features of our, of our species, is that we can plan together and create together. We are doers. And similarly, we have a tense sensitivity to fairness, that we, in some of the experiences that I've read, you know, we will even take less for ourselves if, by, if, if the alternative is to is to feel like somebody else is getting away with something they shouldn't, and, you know, and, 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 and cheating us. We, w we will take less. Uh, it's more important, the fairness principle is more important than the absolute amount that we get. Similarly, when we cooperate, there are parts of our brains that are stimulated from the pleasure of cooperating that they're similar to when we eat chocolate. Hmm. So I'm saying that, that the real thing I want to focus on is not the shoulds, should be more moral, um, but more the we cans that if we really trust 
what is the most beautiful dimensions of our humanity. And that means standing, getting more backbone. That's sort of that's my theme: is that we're good enough, but we need we need to together get more gutsy. Uh, then we can set the rules in a way that bring forth that that you know just those glorious aspects of ourselves. But mm-hmm. we know also, like today, where the culture is telling us and the rules are telling us that it's inevitable that we can have this massive poverty in our own country that we can have, I think we rank 44 in terms of infant death ranked by country in the world. Think of those babies dying, and maternal death just doubled in the United States in the last 20 years. I mean, it's, it's, that is, yes, I agree with you, it's absolutely immoral, but it also is a betrayal of what we know is the best in humanity. And so my emphasis then would be to jump right from there to... A law, a bill in Congress right now, bipartisan support for it. It's called Fair Elections Now, mm-hmm. and I talk about it through uh, one example of this buddy. I mean, not buddy. I wish he were. She's my hero, uh, Deb Simpson, who um, uh, became well. She was a waitress, a single mom in Auburn, Maine, in the year 2000, and she ran for office because they had in Maine, and they have in Maine voluntary public financing so that she could show that she got some support and then the public campaign funding kicked in and she was able to win and then become reelected. That approach is now embodied in this bill, Fair Elections Now bill. It's called the Fair Elections Now Act in uh, Congress, and Obama said he would sign it if we pass it. And Each of us can weigh in on that to help, and this is how it all links back to what we're talking about, is that it would allow then corporate money to be kept out of campaigns so that uh, our legislators can respond to us and we have a chance then to create the rules that keep wealth circulating and that you know, power circulating, power mm-hmm. dispersed, which is essential to bringing out this better part of our humanness. And we have Proposition 15 on the California ballot in June which is a uh, trial program for eight years of uh, that kind of uh, clean money campaign structure uh, for the Secretary of State office. And uh, if it works out, we hope to expand it to all of the uh, uh, state-level elections here in California. So that's uh, one thing that is on track, and it's it's a a substantive uh, issue that people can get behind. And I agree with you that it's fundamental to real change in our political culture. We're talking with Frances Moore LePay. Getting a Grip 2 is her newest book, subtitled Clarity, Creativity, and Courage for the World We Really Want. Tom? That's a remake of the old Thunderclap Newman song from back in the 60s. It was actually released in 1970, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And Francis Moore LePay, you identify four revolutions that you see as uh, underway and uh, fundamentally uh, driving change. And let's touch on each each of them. First, uh, the communications knowledge revolution. Well... I, I think um, it's captured uh, most vividly for me in the fact that now something like 85% of the of the courses at MIT you can you can follow online. I mean, you won't get an MIT degree, but the point is, it's the knowledge that will give us power. And I, I think that it's just the access that we have uh, to knowledge is a very, very clear. In a sense, empowerer of each of us, and so I clearly think that that is one of the revolutions that is making living democracy possible. Have you ever watched uh, the videos from the Fred conferences? The Fred? Yeah, Fred no. is a, it's a, a group that used to gather in Monterey, and it got so big they moved it to Los Angeles last uh-huh. year. But it's uh, thinkers on a whole range of subjects. I, I remember being fascinated by a, a Fred speech a presentation by a woman who traced uh, the growth of Chinese restaurants in the United States. Uh (laughs) And it's just, uh, you know, it's technology-oriented primarily, 
But there are a lot of uh, kind of feature stories and, and other things that people cover. And uh, at some point after the conference, they put the videos up for free. So just Google Fred and mm-hmm. uh, take mm-hmm. a look. It's, it's just a rich trove of uh, information that uh, I think epitomizes what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Next, you mentioned the networking revolution. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're definitely part of it, and uh, I certainly think that that big uh, effort by Milba Kiven in the in the fall, where you know they had something like uh, over five thousand places around the world where people had organized events on the same day. That that is certainly made possible by this networking revolution, and but per, perhaps most dramatic and little known is that there is the first public health treaty in the world is an uh, anti, uh, you know, global tobacco uh, treaty that was um, enacted in 2003. And it was definitely the result of a lot of grassroots efforts from all over the country, because if nothing is done, a billion people will die from tobacco use in this century because of the, now, of course, the shift of tobacco to the rest of the world now that the industrial countries are wising up. And, 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 you know, getting people off of it. But uh, I think these are examples of what we can do now, in large part because of the Internet. Yeah, and stop wasting time on Facebook. Um, a revolution in human dignity. Well, I, I love this, that, you know, of course, there's still a, a terrible crisis in the world of human trafficking, of, of involuntary, you know, slavery, even among farm workers in Florida. Uh, people have been convicted for slavery in America and modern-day slavery that is now being fought by the Immokalee workers. And so that's going on. But on the other hand, uh, there are huge advances. Uh, one of the things that's most striking to me and little known in the U.S. is the International Criminal Court as well as the European Court of Human Rights, which is an amazing institution. Think of it. There is a, in Europe, if, if your country, if your government doesn't do justice for you, you can take your case to the International uh, European Court of Human Justice, Human Rights, and, um, and have a say. And decisions have been made standing up, you know, to the Russians, Russian military, when someone thought they were mistreated and, and have sided with the citizens. So these are things that still are little known, but I think that the the advance in the common understanding of the human, that each human has an inherent right uh, to live in peace and with life's essentials. There, another sign is the uh, spread of the right to eat in 22 constitutions throughout the world. Mm-hmm. So I think that the knowledge communications revolution, certainly the human rights revolution, uh, the, these are... These are all ways in which we are setting it, making it possible to move from this thin democracy, which is sort of democracy as something done to us or for us, to democracy as a living practice, the values of inclusion, of mutuality, of, um, you know, of our own active engagement, that these are, in fairness, that these are useful and mm-hmm. powerful in every dimension of life, whether we're talking about economic life, through democratic cooperatives, as I point out in the book, there are more people now in the world who are members of co-ops. Uh, um, one could, or at least close to the right amount, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, an estimated number, but it's, many are members of co-ops than own shares in publicly traded companies. And again, a little-known fact that in India, for example, more people are women in women's dairy co-ops than have benefited from jobs in the high-tech industry. But hmm. who'd, whoever hears of that, right, Peter? Well, I hadn't before, so thank you. <laughs> you also mentioned the International Criminal Court, and uh, there's a pretty good new movie out called The Ghost Rider. Uh, some people don't want to see it because Roman Polanski uh, directed it. But it's a powerful story, and if we were to uh, make a commercial for the International Criminal Court, the announcer would come on uh, fast-talking at the end, saying, not available in the United States of America. Right, Because right. we haven't signed we haven't. on. And uh, it's just another one of those things I'm disappointed about in Obama, that he hasn't pursued uh, investigations and accountability for the clear wrongdoing, violations of our laws and treaties uh, that occurred in the name of national security under Bush and Cheney. I agree, and I'm so glad you're, you're standing up for this, Peter. 
And, um, yeah, I mean, I was thinking, as you said, that uh, the U.S. is also, I think people don't understand, the U.S. is not not ratified um, for the basic uh, covenants of the most basic covenants of international labor organization, uh, basic uh, labor protections. These are things that we are outliers, and I think it's so important that we can understand that it doesn't have to be that way. And it reflects what I called earlier the privately held government, and we can get our democracy back. Well, Frankie, thank you for joining me today. And I want to recommend your book because um, it, it's fun to read, uh, you know, and you're a very positive person. You're, you're solution-oriented. Uh, as I said in the beginning, you're not, uh, you know, with your head in the clouds or uh, a kind of extreme New Ager just looking at crystals. You, you have very strong views, but you present them in practical ways that are uh, accessible and it's fun to read because oh, the, Peter, the, the book includes a lot of uh, inspiring anecdotes and uh, profiles, brief profiles of people who you've encountered and who you've gotten uh, uh, positive inspiration from. And so uh, I, I just think that, uh, well, it's always great to talk with you. And, uh, y- you know, you're better than uh, a couple of uh, antidepressant pills. <laughs> Can I quote you? <laughs> sure, you can. You can put that on the blurb right next to uh, John Nichols here. Okay. Okay, I will do that. I will do that. You're terrific. Thank and you your so website much. is smallplanet.org. Or yeah. if you want to just go to the book website, yes, you can read all about, including my daughter's new book, yeah. Diet for a Hot Planet. Uh huh. I hope you'll have her on, Peter. Oh, I love Anna. She's great. Yeah, and she's. Uh, we're both going to be out in the Bay Area speaking at the Commonwealth Club. I'm going to interview my daughter. At the Commonwealth <laughs> Club. Isn't that great? <laughs> Well, that could be very interesting. What are the dates for that? Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. They're on your website. People They're can find website. them. They're on the website. And uh, also, um, yeah, oh, gettingagrip.org. So you can go to smallplanet.org to see the whole big picture, including Anna's new book. You can go to gettingagrip.org, and you can peek inside the book and see my son. You see, it's a whole family operation. Yeah. A new film on the real Boston Tea Party, which is really a kick. Well, as I told you before we started uh, recording... Uh, your son Anthony is an inspiration to me because he has taken the new media tools from graphic novels to uh, journalism on the Internet, and he was the first to really open my eyes to the problems caused by the U.S. military's use of depleted uranium, and I will always credit him for that. Yeah, it was pretty scary as his mom, though, to see the film that he made and to watch him with the Geiger counter. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that, uh, yeah. It was terrifying. Well, uh, have you checked him recently? No, but uh, <laughs> he does have one healthy daughter, so I'm. Uh, that's a good sign. All right, Frankie. Great to talk to you again. Wonderful Thanks for your time to you. today. Thank you. Francis Moore LePay, Getting a Grip. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Send me an email, peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you, keep smiling.